0: After that, it's a pleasure to announce today's sermon series, Quit Going to Church. Seems kind of counterintuitive to say the least, maybe a little bit ironic, but that's what I want to talk about. Let me start this way. If I could ask you to fill in a blank with a word, a phrase, or whatever, it would say this, church is what? Church is us. What else you got?
1: Early. Amen, brother.
0: Early. Yes. Church is the people. Church is... Refreshing. Love. Place of worship. The hope of the world. Life. The body. I heard something back here I just didn't hear. The body of Christ. Refuge. Family. Sorry, forgiveness, learning, hope, believers, a hospital for sinners, of which, of which I am the chief, Paul would say, necessary. A lot of words we could put in there, a lot of things. Now, I bet if I were to ask you what's the Greek word, this translated church, many of you would know it is the Greek word. Ekklesia, you've heard that, right? You just didn't want to show off, I understand. The Greek word for church is ekklesia. It's uh, two words, compound word, ek, meaning out, from, and kaleo, meaning called. And so literally, the church, that word means the called out ones. And that was a word that was used in common Greek culture uh, for when sort of a town crier would go out and announce that there was going to be some gathering, usually for a community or quasi-political purposes. he go around and call out the citizens to come gather at a particular place to discuss the issues of the day. And so that's the word in Greek that when Jesus said, I will build my church, and not even the gates of Hades can prevail against it, that's the word he used. Now, the, the English word church actually doesn't come from that word. It comes from from a different word. Some people look at the word in Greek that means the house of the Lord. It comes from there, that which belongs to the Lord. Other people look at maybe a more German word that sounds a little bit like the English word church that means different things. But the the Greek word that is 115 times used in the New Testament, 113 times used or translated as church is ekklesia, the called out ones. We are called out. Um, But One of the things that has happened over time is when we talk about church, we usually use that wonderful phrase, I'm going to go to church. In fact, many of you today probably thought, let's go to church. Did you get up this morning thinking, I can't wait to go to church? Or did you see, whether on the internet or otherwise, that this Sunday sermon was quit going to church and you thought to yourself, you thought, I know that preacher is a football fan. And he probably knows that the Miami Dolphins are in London, and the game kicks off at, yep. I thought about, you know, streaming it to the back wall, but it might be a little distracting or disheartening lately, as the Dolphins have played. And maybe that's what you thought. In fact, somebody said they heard last week, uh, the, the series this week was Quit Going to Church, and they said this, well, I've been practicing. Maybe that's... Well, obviously, we use that phrase, and and maybe because of just common usage, we get used to that idea. And so today, you're probably not surprised that my encouragement isn't, you should never go and attend a church service again. Rather, maybe if I was to tweak the title a little bit, I would say it like this, Quit Just Going to Church. Because for a lot of us, we've made the exchange. We've decided that going to church equals Christianity. But when we look back in the New Testament, that's not the picture that we see. In fact, the very first followers of Jesus, the earliest members of what we call the church, their experience of worship and life looks at times nothing or very little like what you and I equate with going to church. You could look at all the the instructions and parables of Jesus, and you know what you won't find one that will tell you to do? Go to church, amazingly enough. You could look all over Jerusalem for that structure with the steeple and the cross on top that identifies churches all over our country, and you would find back in the first century all of if there's one maybe stark difference between the first century church and our church today is is the fact that a church today often has property, owns a building, has an auditorium like this called a sanctuary, a worship center, called all sorts of things. But in those days, that wasn't the case. When the earliest believers went to church, they didn't go to a place that was labeled and set aside for a particular usage. And so I thought, What we do today to kind of get started on this is look at one of the earliest capsules of the description of the life of believers in the first century. It's found in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 begins uh, with the day of Pentecost, the gift of the Holy Spirit to the disciples gathered in that upper upper room, the the mighty wind, the, the tongues like flames of fire, they go out. And, and Peter preaches a stem winder of a sermon. You might have heard of that one. And, and the, uh, the end result is that 3,000 people are added to their number that day. So the, the church, if we can use that term to describe those earliest believers, starts with this small group of disciples, uh, 12 that was winnowed to 11 after Judas did his thing, that were the leaders and the the hangers-on around, and they go out, and on the first day of the church, over 3,000 added to their number. So what did they do now that this burgeoning, bustling, growing church, how did they live out what they believed and what they directly received from Jesus himself? Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 41, I think, gives us a little insight into the kind of life they had. And it says this, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So that's the day of Pentecost, the first day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. That is the earliest snapshot we have of what it meant to go to church use the phrase we're talking about here. What does that tell us? What did they do? Let's just kind of go through the things that it tells us in there in Acts chapter 2. What were the things that identified this group, these earliest followers of Christ? Well, verse 41 tells us those who received the message were baptized. Baptism was the right, if we could call it that, although we, we look at it a little differently than, than a sacrament and other uh, denominations would, but the the symbolic entrance into the fellowship or the group that we call the earliest church or the Christians. That's what happened. The, the ones that heard the message, the 3,000 that were added to their number, they received the message and they were baptized, following in the tradition of Jesus himself, who went to John the Baptist and said... Uh, Baptized. No, no, no. You should baptize me. I shouldn't baptize you. It's not going to work that way. And Jesus said, I'm doing this to fulfill all righteousness. And he sets the example there with John the Baptist that believers throughout the centuries have followed. That this sort of initiation ritual, if you were, and that's selling it very short, is what marks our entrance into this thing we call the church or the body of Christ or the fellowship of believers, all the different words that that you have used to describe it. It was, by its very nature, symbolic. Baptism is an interesting word. It is a cop-out. We talked about the origin of the word church comes from the Greek word ekklesia, so they sound nothing alike. Well, the Greek word for baptism is, any guesses? Baptizo. Hard to figure out where that comes from, huh? Obviously, it's baptizo if you want to be all easy sound, but I like to say it baptizo because it sounds real hip. No, because it sounds more like baptize. Um, baptize comes from the Greek word baptizo. Why is it from that word? Well, because when they decided to take that word from the Greek and put it in English, they had a, a quandary, a conundrum, a problem. See, the word, if you were to open a Greek lexicon and look at it and say, what does this Greek word means? Mean means. Subject and verb have to. What does this Greek word mean? It means to dip, or as sometimes we call it, to dunk. Um, If you've ever seen one of our baptism services, when somebody's baptized in a Baptist church, uh, we put them all the way under the water. And that's really at root what the word means. But many who were a part of putting together the English Bible, the King James, 11 and around then, they didn't practice the the method of dunking, or the technical term was immersion. They practiced a different method. And so to translate the word baptize into what it meant might offend people that weren't dunked. And so they said, "Ah, I have an idea, let's just transliterate. Take the Greek letters and make them English letters. By the way, have I told you my baptism story? I have. You've just forgotten, or you're politely going to laugh anyway. I was saved at a very young age, about seven years old, and baptized. I went forward on Sunday morning and was baptized Sunday night, which is really cool, pretty exciting for a little kid. I understood what was going on. But uh, a few years later, we had a pastor who was very evangelistic, uh, and he was the definition of hell, fire, and brimstone. He brought it. And he, I mean, Yale, yeah, he was from Texas, what he expected, that's what he did. And he, there it was, and and he every time when we'd come to the time of our invitation, he would make a big point about baptism. And he said, "If you have not been baptized by immersion, that that's a problem, and you need to be baptized by immersion." I was about eight or nine years old, and I heard you have to be baptized by a person who is a immersion. And I wasn't sure Pastor Benz, who baptized me, was immersion. What if he was a Venetian or, or from Urania? I didn't know. So I was struggling, and I went to my pastor at the time, see Russell Clemens, and said, Pastor Clemens, I'm a little worried. I don't know if he was a Mersian. And he looked at me, not sure what was going on, and said, what all good pastors do, go ask your mother. And I did, and she explained it to me that, in fact, it was the method. It wasn't the qualification of the person that did it. Nonetheless, baptism is that act by which we identify first with Jesus, symbolically, the reason it's by, by dunking is because you are symbolically being buried with Christ in baptism. In fact, many pastors will use this sort of formula, and then brought out of the water, raised to walk in newness of life through his resurrection power. It's a symbol of what happens, that when we accept Christ as Savior, the Bible tells us the old has passed away and the new has come, symbolically pictured in baptism. And so these 3,000, and then all the others that added to that church, they were part of that group. They they followed the example of baptism. It says all the ones who believed were baptized. And then it tells us they devoted themselves to some things. Now that word devoted is interesting. The Greek word, if you were to look up what that means, the, the definition in, in my uh, lexicon was this, to continue with effort, in a way that implies despite difficulty. So these earliest Christians, the things we're going to look at now in Acts chapter 2, they continued doing these things, and they put effort into it, and they didn't allow any difficulty that might come along to deter them from it. That's the idea. When it says they devoted themselves to it, and that's the case. Now, if you've ever been devoted to anything, you know at times it requires you to deal with some difficulty, yes? Yes? Let's see. What can we say? Is anybody here devoted to fishing? Fishing? Any fishermen in the house? Fisher women in the house? Why are you just not admitting it? Are you just mad at me for bringing it up? Because that's where you'd rather be. You thought quit going to church so we can instead go fishing? Yes, right. Have you ever been fishing and had to overcome difficulty? Yes. Okay. I'm trying to connect with people. It's not working so good. Um, I don't know. Let's see. Maybe we should pick something else. What? What's... Uh, I was going to say. Let's see. Ladies, have you ever been devoted to shopping? And guys, have we had to overcome difficulty? Yes. Oh, wait. You're supposed to overcome. Anyway, when we devote ourselves to something, at times we have to push through difficulty. We have to deal with adversity. And that's what these earliest disciples had to do at times. And we see the account of much of the difficulty they faced in the book of Acts. But nonetheless... They devoted themselves to these particular things. They devoted themselves, first of all, to the apostles' teaching. It's an interesting phrase to put. They're devoted to the apostles' teaching. What we would say today would be uh, the Bible, or the Word of God, the apostles' teaching, those leaders, those uh, 12 disciples, or 11, after uh, Judas did his thing, but I guess Matthias came in nonetheless, and Paul later, there's a whole debate about that. But nevertheless, those disciples, those apostles that were with Jesus told about who he was, what he did, and and really a lot of their message was about the fact that he died and rose again. That's a huge part of most of the messages, the sermons we see preached in the book of Acts. But overall, the group that were baptized into this fellowship, into this group of believers, wanted to know from the apostles, what did you learn from Jesus? We want to know what you learned. We want to hear what you heard him say. Tell us the things that he taught. Tell us all that, that you know of him. And we are fortunate today that we can, in all sorts of places, pick up copies of that, whether it's uh, a bound copy like a book, a Bible, or many of you today probably have it on your iPad or your other tablet or your phones. It's right there, at just easily searchable. The great thing about that is the fact you can pick up an app and look for a keyword or, or have several translations at your fingertips without having to have a different book for each translation. We have such access to this. And maybe because of that, we take it for granted. It's just everywhere, so we can have it whenever. But those earliest disciples, those earliest believers, as they got together, they were desperate to know what these apostles had to say, to learn more of Jesus. They were devoted to that teaching as we could take that to heart, we should be devoted to that Can't, same kind of teaching. It says next they were devoted to the fellowship. Now after church, at the end of our service, I'll say we have a time of fellowship prepared. And in Baptist world, fellowship means one word, also starts with an F and ends with ood. Right? Any Baptists in the house? hala No, I'm sorry. Right? We uh if we say we're gonna have fellowship, we mean we're gonna have food. We have a fellowship hall which is a church world way of saying we're going to eat in there. It's just how it works. But for them, the fellowship in this sense was more than that. Now, in that culture, let's understand that to share a meal with somebody was a pretty intimate act. You just didn't do that with anybody. There was a sense of you had to have the desire to sit across from them and get to know them. The meals were uh, maybe a little more leisurely than some of ours are. We sort of have that necessity sometimes if for in our busyness of life we sit down and scarf it down and throw the dishes in the dishwasher and get back to work. But but for them the, the, the pace of life and the demands at times were such that to share a meal involved a lot of intimate time and so it wasn't any small thing to have fellowship, to have a meal with somebody and so they would do that. And and there was a sense of commonality. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. They were willing, even if it meant with difficulty, to seek out another believer in Jesus Christ and spend time with them face-to-face, sharing struggles, life, hurts, victories, whatever it was. And, and so that was what marked them. They entered into this covenantal relationship through baptism. They learned about the words of Jesus and all that he came from, and then they wanted to be with others who shared their same view of the world, shared their same allegiance to Christ, shared their same values. They devoted themselves to fellowship. And then it says to the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread, many people think, is a a term that means the Lord's Supper, which is, if you came in today and saw the the dishes on the table here, you know that this is what we're going to do a little bit later in our service. Uh, For them, it was a regular thing. Jesus sat down with those disciples on the Passover meal and took... A familiar religious part of their life and gave it new meaning. Took the the symbols that pointed to the deliverance from Egypt in the Exodus and said, I'm going to give them a different and newer and bigger meaning. This cup, or excuse me, this this bread, this matzah that you've eaten every year that that you know, this is symbolic of my body broken for you. And this cup, one of four cups in a Passover meal, this This cup of wine now symbolizes my blood, which will be shed on the cross for you. And so they would get together as these earliest believers because Jesus said, as often as you do that, or Paul tells us, as often as we do this, we proclaim Jesus' death till he comes again. And they would use that as a symbol to remind them of what he has done for them. And so they devoted themselves. That was a regular feature of their lives together. In our church, we do it usually once a month, usually on the first Sunday of the month. And that's just the pattern. Different churches have different patterns of doing it. But in the earliest churches, when they, in the earliest group of believers, it was something that was key to how they related to each other and how they came to understand who Jesus was. And it says finally they devote themselves to prayer. Now, if you've been in our services regularly, you know our services have a pattern. We sing a song, and then we pray. And then we sing a song, and then one of the ushers pray. Take the offering do you sing a song. And then you shake hands. And then we sing a song. And then I talk for a while. And then I pray. And then we sing a song. There's a theme developing there. And then we uh, have some announcements and we go home. You see that in our religious services here, there, there's a pattern. You see prayer shows up. I don't know, though, at times we could say, If you looked at our services, if those early Christians looked at how we prayed, if they said, now that is a group that's devoted to prayer. They might see things the way sometimes we see them. We feel like it's just something that's supposed to happen next in an order of service. But for those earliest believers, they devoted themselves to prayer. I think it's Acts chapter 3 is an incredible prayer that they prayed together. And at the end of this group praying, after there was an arrest and then uh, a threat against the earliest disciples, and they got back together, they prayed, and it says the place where they were praying was shaken. And all of them went out from there and proclaimed the word of God, the gospel with boldness. See, they devoted themselves to prayer because they understood the connection that prayer gave them to the one who died and rose again. They understood in that that there was power and a resource in prayer that sometimes we just take for granted. The next verse tells us they did something really, really, really strange. It says that, excuse me, one more verse ahead, all the believers were together and had everything in common. And then the next verse tells us when someone had a need, they'd sell and give to those who had needs. That's just crazy talk. It's in the book, right? Remarkable, isn't it? That's how they live together. When it says they devoted themselves to the fellowship, shared meals together, we're, we're good with that. When you see that one of the outgrowths of devoting themselves to the fellowship was this kind of interdependence, for us in you know the very individualistic modern society as Americans, that might feel a little uncomfortable. But that's how they lived. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 27, he called one of the words, I think somebody said this when we filled in the blank earlier. It says, now you are the body of Christ, Paul writes, and each one of you is a part of it. So, so let me ask, has anybody ever had a broken arm? Broken leg, broken bone? Yes. Let me ask you this. Your leg is broke. Your arm is broke. I'm like what? This thing is just slowing me down. I'm going to pretend like nothing's wrong. And just keep going. How well does that work out? Not so good? Not, not very good at all. Have you ever stubbed your little pinky toe? And it's like pointing in the wrong direction. In the middle of the night. You can just slough it off and pretend like nothing happened, right? What happens when you stub your little pinky toe? The whole house wakes up. At the blue words issuing from your mouth, probably. It hurts like the dickens. And you let it, it stops you. Nothing else matters because my pinky toe got stubbed on the, whatever, thing, chair. It was the treadmill yesterday, actually. It hurt. It wasn't there a few weeks ago. It's there now, right on my side of the bed, and it's dark at night. I don't know if you knew that and I got out, and I forgot it was there. wham a -a ding dong It was not good. Nothing else matters, right? And sometimes in the church, we we want to sort of have our own little separate lives, and, you know, when we go to church, we kind of come together, and we interact as much as we have to, because there's that time in the service where the preacher says fill out the form, and then shake hands, and You know, we do that, but we're just sometimes just anxious to go about our business if all we're doing is going to church. But if we, as the church, understand this kind of life, that we are the body, we are all interconnected and interdependent, it doesn't matter who or what or where, what position or what point of priority or or place you hold, even if you're just the little pinky toe. When the pinky toe's hurt, the whole body knows and acts based upon the pain of the pinky toe. Did you think you were going to get a lesson on pinky toes today? I'm just having fun saying the phrase pinky toe. That's at least ten times already. But the point being that for that group, when, when they got together as this early group of believers, they noticed the hurts. They noticed the needs, and then they took steps to meet the needs because they understood we are in this thing together. We are a body together. If one part of the body hurts, the whole body is affected by it, and so that's one way that they did that. They understood they were participants in the greater, larger life of this group, this body, this church, and so they were willing to do Some pretty radical things to make sure every part was taken care of. And then here's a part that, when you think about the earliest group of believers, did you know how often they met together? Do you remember from that? Every day. So tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. we'll be here. And Tuesday, any takers? No. But actually, they didn't do that either. Because every day... They continued to meet together, it says, in the temple courts, but they also broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Back to that, devoting themselves to the fellowship. Their meeting together wasn't formulaic. It wasn't at a particular time or place. Sometimes they went to the temple courts because that was where a lot of times they could go to share what they knew about Jesus, who came to fulfill all that the temple and its sacrificial system stood for. Sometimes they got together in homes, but they were... They were so dependent on each other that they regularly met because they needed that encouragement. We say today, you've probably heard it said, you might have said it yourself, as you try to, to live the Christian life, to live for Christ, it's becoming, it seems like, harder and harder at times in our world to stand up for the things we believe in. And we say that, but back then, you know what happened when you, when you stood up for Jesus? Well, Sometimes, they threw you in jail. Sometimes, they beat you. A little bit later in Roman life, they fed you to the lions. We got it pretty good! Okay, maybe that's exaggerating in some ways, but nonetheless, those folks that did this took great risk to identify as who they were and with others. And they were willing to take those risks because they knew they needed each other. And for us, we say these things and, and realize maybe at some point this individualistic, I'm just going to church, loses some of the, the nature and, and the character of what we see present in the early church. Now, now here's the reality. Uh, as, a, as, a, as a preacher-type person... It's probably my fault as much as anybody's. Because over the course of history and over the course of the life of churches, when along the way churches bought property and erected buildings and hired staff, suddenly things changed. It's different when you are in the first century and doing those things versus today. It's just a different situation. There are different... Realities And what has happened and the change that has happened, a lot of times overseen by clergy, is the, shall we say, the maintenance of the organization rises to the top. Because FKEC and FKAA and the insurance company and all these different people send us bills every month, just like they send you, and they want us to write a check to pay those bills. And if we don't, they do things like, I don't know, turn off your power, don't give you any water, or who knows what else. You know how that works, because you have the same needs. And because that's the nature of the institutional church, the shift probably happened as part of that, and more often than not led by clergy, because the other dynamic was when clergy began to have prominence and all them then then. There's a little bit of pride in humanity. Have you noticed that? And a little bit of a, a, a need to, to feel important or, or powerful. And the history of the church, unfortunately, at times, is full of folks who got full of their uh, themselves and allowed those human natural things to take over to the detriment of the greater church. And now, we could look at big things, but but here's the thing that, on a First Baptist Church Key Largo scale, because that's where we are today. I can see that. that. I have this this need. I guess we all do to some degree, but some of us have it maybe more than others. Maybe it's a preacher thing. I have this need to feel uh, needed. And so sometimes what, what I would do as a preacher type is to do things think people would say, oh, well, that's great, the preacher did that, that's kind of neat, and, would, and then would not only notice, but would compliment. I don't mean like preaching, I mean like other stuff. Like all the the little things that need to happen in the organization to get things going. See, I, the other thing I have uh, a problem with is um, I'd rather do it myself. Maybe because I want the credit, but also because I'm so arrogant about it sometimes, I think I'll do it better than anybody else. Anybody? anybody okay, just. Sorry. True. Very stinking true. And somebody asked me about something I was doing, they said, why are you doing that? And I didn't have a really good answer. so I thought about it what I just told you is what I came up with because I want people to like me and compliment me if I do it decently and feel needed and somehow stroke the ego because I'm the only one that can do it This that's real Christian ain't it but it's true we're just the smallest church Imagine the churches that have thousands. How those temptations are compounded. How the, the... And how then serving the organization becomes the motivation. Because it's where the strokes are gotten by the leader. And so it's easy to, to move away from that kind of thing. The early days of the church when there was devotion to one another and devotion to the Word of God and meeting of needs and understanding of body life to an institutional maintenance or preservation to a personal ego trip. And somewhere in all of that mess, what we tell people is, you should just come to church, because here's what we get to do every year. I have it on my desk now in Southern Baptist. We have what's called the Associational Church Profile. Doesn't that sound exciting? Basically, it's a bunch of statistics that we send in to the to the mothership. This is not that cult from a few years back, just so we're clear. We fill it out. Actually, you can do it online now because technology. And send it in. And, and then they send you a report, a book, so you can look. And this is what we preachers do. We look and say, in our association... Did we have the most baptisms? Did we have the most offering? Did we have the biggest attendance? I'm the best. Real Christian of me, huh? But again, those human tendencies that crop up, that over time, 2,000 years or so now, have a tendency to pull the church away from that which defined it in its earliest days, that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. That, That they met together every day, sometimes in the temple courts and sometimes in homes, eating and sharing meals together. That they took care of the needs of others, even if it meant selling what they had to make sure the need of somebody else was met. And the bottom line, the final summation, and the Lord added to their number daily who were being saved. I would guess we would all say that would be cool. Huh? Could you imagine being a part of a group, a church, a group of believers where every day somebody became a believer? That would be awesome. That would be exciting. It's almost like it was the thing that drove the engine. You know, look, we, this person is, is now... A believer, And so now I'm even more motivated to go back and learn more of Jesus. And I'm even more motivated to, to bring this person in so he can meet and be a part of our fellowship. And I'm even more motivated to pray and ask God to, to continue to do this. And, and it's just this thing that sort of reproduces itself when we get it maybe closer to the early church model. So my encouragement to you today and in the weeks ahead is stop going to church. Stop thinking that coming here is your is your duty and somehow impresses God and he keeps attendance in the sky and and overall it makes him happier with you. No, my my encouragement is to stop that. And if you'll allow me to be quite trite, stop going to church and start. for the world around us. We're going to take the Lord's Supper now, and we're going to do it the way we've done it a few times. And it seems appropriate, given what we just talked about, but if our our deacons would come and and get ready to pass it out, I'm going to invite you to find a few people around you, a small group. Today is the first day the kids are over there, and I'm going to go along. Find a small group, four, five, six, seven. Just if you want to stay where you are, great. If you need to move, great. I know we have guests here today. Make sure we include everybody. And they're going to pass out the elements. And you go ahead and take both uh, the, the, the wafer and the cup. And then rather than me organizing the Lord's Supper, how about you give it a small-scale try? Just in that group, take it together. Maybe it'll mean sharing a little bit of your experience. Maybe you'll meet somebody you haven't had a chance to talk to before. Ask them a little bit about themselves. Maybe it'll be a chance to interact in a different way than we normally do here in church world. But I want to invite you just to take these few minutes and on your own time, without any instruction from me, with these elements that symbolize the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, He who is the one who laid down his life for us, his church, to worship together.